trying to bring you an update on Sudan for a while now. For weeks after the military took over on October 25th, an internet shutdown made it hard to speak with people inside the country. But even as a communications blackout meant news was only trickling out of Sudan, the situation on the ground was rapidly changing. General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan has dissolved the Sovereign Council. The Prime Minister is among those detained in the October coup. Sudan has been rocked by protests, some of them deadly. After weeks of pressure from the streets of Sudan, the Prime Minister was removed from house arrest and reinstated on November 21st. The internet is back, but protests have continued. Is the political crisis in Sudan over? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. We've been hearing from people inside Sudan ever since the military takeover in October. Samahar al-Mubarak is one of them. Here she is on November 16th, telling us about what the few weeks before had been like for her. We woke up on the 25th of October, very early morning, to realize that we have been stabbed in the back by the military forces. It was very clear for us from the very first moment that this was a military coup. The military, headed by General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, had dissolved Sudan's governing transitional council. Dozens of politicians and government officials were arrested. That included the prime minister, Abdullah Hamdok, who was under house arrest. And while the rest of the world was struggling to find out what had happened, people like Samahir were looking for ways to stay in touch with others within the country. We went back to very primitive means of communication by looking at the smoke of tires in different places across the skyline. When we saw the smoke of tires, we knew that there were other brothers and sisters out in the street. And we showed that we refused this coup from the very first moment. Samahir, like many of the people out in Sudan streets this month, is no stranger to protests against the military. She represents the Pharmacists' Union in the Sudanese Professionals' Association. The group was one of the backbones of the protests that began in 2018 to oust former Sudanese president Omar al-Bashir after 30 years of his rule. We're back to square one where our demands were complete civilian rule in Sudan. And here we do not mean a civilian at the head of the executive government. No, we mean the entire civilian government. The army goes back to doing its role as a defense institution. Would you have the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of Education in a power-sharing agreement with the civilian society in any country? This, it's just the same thing. This is an institution that's funded by the taxpayers in Sudan to perform certain functions. Hence, it should be back doing those functions. And this vicious cycles of coups should be corrected once and for all for us to be able to transition. The two years since Bashir's ouster have been rocky. Before the coup, Sudan was led by a transitional government as a military-civilian partnership meant to take the country to elections in 2023. 
What's happening in Sudan today is not an isolated incident. This is a process, a revolution that has been going on since December 2018. Our uh, fight against dictatorships has not ended. We are very uh, aware that the price that our brothers and sisters have paid in advance is their lives and their blood for the new democratic civil Sudan. It's high time that we realize this dream and it's very important for us, especially now that our voices are, are being locked in, that everybody knows that we are still fighting. Meanwhile, reporters within Sudan, like Al Jazeera's Hiba Morgan, were also trying to tell the rest of the world what was happening within the country. And it wasn't easy. I spoke with Hiba on November 16th about her experiences after the coup. Hiba, what has reporting been like for you over these past few weeks? It feels like you've gone back a few years. When you try to interview people, there's always the first question that you hear from them, will I get in trouble with the military? And we've seen journalists being intimidated. Even here at Al Jazeera, you know, we've had the military radar office. We have had our bureau chief's home raided. He was arrested for a few hours. We didn't know exactly where he was. And then he turned up at the police station and he had to spend two nights out of home with basically the prosecutor saying that there were charges against him for broadcasting pictures of protests. So, you, you know, we're, we're living this time right now. Like whenever we come to the office, it's like, is, is this going to be the day where we're going to be raided? Is this the day where the military is going to come and say, you know, we're not allowed to work? Is this the day where someone from the office will get arrested. It's it's always there on the back of your head, you know, what's going to happen in the next few minutes? What's going to happen in the next few hours? And who's going to be next? Right, of course. So you're in the bureau because that's where you can get good internet to have this conversation. But as you mentioned, it doesn't always feel like the safest place. So do you feel at ease? Do you feel safe? It's... I wouldn't use the word safe. It's familiar in a sense that up until 2019, when President Bashir was still in power, that's how the working environment has been. And it's been about two years of being able to operate without concerns of being arrested simply because what you're doing is not impressing the military. It's like, you know, Sudan has taken a couple of steps forward and a couple of steps back. So it's a familiar feeling. And it's, again, quite disappointing because... People used to be able to express themselves much more freely over the past couple of years. That basic freedom of expression that was starting to open up is now looking like it's closing in again. And it's, it's a disappointment. So I'd like to talk more about that. There have been plenty of protests since the military took power. What do these protests look like? Surprisingly, with the lack of internet, the turnout is huge. We are talking about thousands and thousands of people, not just in the capital, Khartoum, but other cities as well. So there's this local resistance committees in residential neighborhoods around the country. They've been mobilizing people to come out and protest against the military takeover since October 25th. And we've seen the response by security forces. We've seen tear gas being fired at the protesters. We've seen live ammunition being fired at the protesters. We've seen many of them being chased around residential neighborhoods, arrested. But then surprisingly, with all of that, they come out again and 
they, they, they basically have demands that they feel like has to be met. So a reminder, we recorded this conversation with Hiba on November 16th. At that point, security forces had killed about 23 people in the crackdown on the protests. One person pointed out it's like for every day of the military takeover, one person has lost his life. And it's, it's, it's very sad when you look at it like that. Again, because Sudan could have been on a different path. And then the next day... Security forces shot dead another 14 people. This according to a group of medics on the ground. Before the coup, November 17th had been a day for pro-democracy activists to look forward to. The civilian side of the government had set that as the date when the military would hand over leadership of Sudan's transitional council. For the first time in 30 years, Sudan would be led by a civilian. To mark the day, thousands of people came out onto the streets in protest against the coup. And then security forces fired tear gas and live ammunition, killing more than a dozen people. It was the deadliest day since the military takeover began. And then, a few days after that... Sudan's military and civilian leaders have reached a deal to reinstate the ousted Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok. On November 21st, Burhan and Hamdok signed a deal at the presidential palace that would lead to the Prime Minister's return to his post. This news wasn't a total surprise for Hiba. She'd been in touch with some of Hamdok's aides ever since the coup and had been hearing about the progression of talks between his side and the army. Here she is again, updating us this week on the lead-up to Hamdok's reinstatement and everything that's happened since then. So a couple of days before we were told that, oh, there's a potential deal from both military sources and from his aides. And it was a bit surprising because, you know, we were looking at the streets, people out on the streets saying they don't want any compromise, they don't want any negotiations. And then on the other hand, you have, oh, there's a deal coming up, which is the complete opposite of what people wanted. The deal between Burhan and Hamdok is a framework, Hiba says. There are 14 points in the agreement. They include reinstating the prime minister, releasing political prisoners, and creating a new government of technocrats who aren't affiliated with any political party. Most of the people I've been speaking to, some of them are in shock. The other people that we've been speaking to, they they basically regarded it as, you know, it was bound to happen because of the pressure that was put under Hamdok and his family, being under house arrest, being in contact with relatively few people. So essentially, you're a prisoner everywhere you go. So some of the people who we spoke to after the deal was signed said that, you know, we could see it's coming because we understand the pressure that he was put under. They understand his point of view when he says, We are trying to preserve the blood of Sudanese youth. I know that our youth has the capacity for sacrifice, determination, and giving up all that is precious. But Sudanese blood is precious. Let us stop the bloodshed and direct the youth's energy into construction and development. But others, especially on the day of the announcement, some of the uh, resistance committee's members who we spoke to, they were angry, they were, they were infuriated. For them, Hamdok was a symbol of the civilian government that they've been demanding. And one of them told us that, well, we've just got another name added to the list of people we're now coming out against. And for me, that was, 
I, I wouldn't say I was surprised because they've been demanding that they don't want any negotiations. Something like that was bound to get them angry. But then you can also see the, the, the hurt in their eyes and you can hear it in their voices that they felt let down. Since Hamdok's reinstatement, people have continued to demonstrate against the deal. And while a lot of that has been traditional street protests, there are plenty of other signs of discontent. Twelve cabinet ministers resigned from the government after Hamdok came back. And his return didn't mean going back to the status quo from before the coup. When you look at October 24th and when you look at November 21st, the Forces of Freedom and Change Coalition have lost their power in government. That's the loose coalition that represented the protest movement in the government after Bashir was overthrown. They don't have that same power in government that they had before. And the reason why I'm stressing on this in government part, because to a certain degree, they can actually mobilize the streets and cause enough political instability to the point that the, the military may need to negotiate with them or even acknowledge them, something that the military is not doing at the moment. So yeah, that's the biggest difference, that October 24th, they had a say in government and in Sudan's politics following November 21st. They still have an impact on Sudan's politics, but at the moment, they're not in the government. And for people in the streets, the government isn't the only difference between today and October 24th. Since the coup, more than 40 people have been killed and hundreds more injured. In an interview, another of our Al Jazeera colleagues, Rasul Sardar, asked Prime Minister Hamdok about accountability moving forward. So, Mr. Prime Minister, justice. I'm not talking about the justice for what happened over the past month, but uh, also the process of transitional justice as well. This is one of the priorities of the revolution, to achieve justice, an inclusive, lasting justice, transitional justice, which means that we should all work together to achieve this justice and see justice administered and served to the families of the victims. Hiba says that justice for victims of the revolution has been an issue for a while now. It's not just about the killings from the past month, but also the actions of security forces in the years since the 2018 protest movement began. When it comes to the issue of accountability for the civilian deaths and injuries, a lot of people are saying that as long as the military is in charge, they don't see that happening. So all of that is is under one package for the protesters. The conversation that goes around it is that if the military is in charge, they're definitely not going to hold themselves to account or they're not going to hold to account other security forces. They're going to blame it on the politics for the civilians. They're going to drag their feet, but they won't deliver accountability. So the idea is that if you want accountability, uh, you're going to have to remove the military out of politics and you have to weaken them and demand reforms in their institutions and in other security sectors as well. So what's happened to that climate of fear that Hiba mentioned when we spoke a few weeks ago? Since Prime Minister Abdullah Hamdok was reinstated, there's not so much fear as there is anger on the streets and in the people who we interview. He was a symbol of civilian rule in this country. In the weeks between the coup and Hamdok's return, there were stories coming out about his refusal to read a statement in support of the military takeover. 
that made him a hero in so many people's eyes. And in, in, in protests around the country, you could see people carrying banners and carrying posters with his pictures. But since he was reinstated, you could see the anger and people do come out and talk, I, I think. In my view, they come out and talk more than they did before. And it's always to say, you know, that we've been betrayed, that we still want a civilian rule. And now we're not going to even mention Hamdok or the Force of Freedom and Change Coalition. We just want the government to hand over power. So it's quite interesting to see that that kind of, I would say, push that is given to the protest movement on the streets. Remember Simahir? the pharmacist we heard at the beginning of this episode. We talked to her again after Hamdok's reinstatement, and what she told us echoes Hiba's point about the demand for a purely civilian government. For us, I think it's it's irrational that after so much blood has been shed, that after we have lost 42 lives and counting, it does not make sense to, to go into such a deal. With respect to the reinstatement of Hamdok, it was clear that he has chosen sites. He chose to legitimize this military coup. For us, it has never been about Hamdok or anybody else. It has been about the entire process of uh, transition from an autocratic dictatorship regime to a democratic regime. What Hamdok has done is he has chosen his side, and it's not the side of the Sudanese people. And the response from the international community has been welcoming of the Hamdok-Burhan deal, if a little bit tepid. Here's U.S. Secretary of State spokesperson Ned Price. We're encouraged by the release of Prime Minister Hamdok from house arrest uh, and his reinstatement uh, to office. But let me just underscore, this is a first step. Uh, This is nothing more than that, and we'll be watching very closely. Indeed, many parts of the international community have spoken out in favor of Hamdok's reinstatement. But I think that's because they have not been listening to what the Sudanese people are saying out in the streets, are demanding and have been demanding for the past three years. These scenarios are repeated scenarios. To put a civilian face on on a military coup will not change the fact that this is a coup and it is refused, any form of recognition would be betrayal to the will of the Sudanese people. We ask that the international community listen to the demands and dreams of the Sudanese people. We will continue to fight. Our journey is long. We are midway and we are not going to go back. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai with Ruby Zaman, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilbe, Amy Walters, Ney Alvarez, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>